Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Rise and Fall, based out of our study on the first four chapters of First Samuel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. This morning we're in First Samuel 2, we're going to be in verses 27 through 36. 27 through 36, First Samuel 2, 27 through 36. So, Father, we ask that you would speak this morning. We honor your word. We believe it's inspired, filled with your presence, God. We ask that as we examine it this morning, you would do what only you can do. Encourage us, edify us, move on our hearts, we pray. We need you this morning. We need you this morning. We're desperate for you. Somebody say amen. Amen, amen. Frances, my uh, my middle child, last night came in the room and said she was scared. She was scared. And uh, when I ask her what she's scared of, she doesn't have an answer for why she's scared, which basically means I'm not really scared. I just want you to come lay with me. Um, I think it was Tuesday night she came in and said she was having scary dreams. And I know that kid is a liar, y'all. I know she's lying to me. I'm just teasing. But I really do think she was lying. <laughs> but it's hard to say that to your three-year-old when she's crying. Um, so I picked her up and I took her in. Um, our spare bedroom, because there was already another kid in the bed and four heartbeats in one bed is against the law. I don't know if you know that, but if it's not against the law, it should be. Um, so I take her in the other room, but I'm one of those people that once I'm up, I'm up and there is no sleeping. So I'm laying in bed at night and I'm thinking about our passage today and I'm, I'm just kind of like rolling it over. And really slowly, my mind started to shift to a man who history calls Marcion of Sinope, um, is a figure in church history. Um, Marcion, um, was a rather wealthy man from an influential family. He gave an, a staggering amount of money to the church, like tons of money um, to his church. And shortly after he gave that money, he became a heretic um, and he began teaching false doctrine. And the church actually gave him all of that money back. Um, and they said, we don't want your money. Um, I want you to know that if you give us a ton of money and then you decide you're going to live how you want to live, we're going to keep that money now. Don't think I'm giving that back. We're going to keep it. Just kidding. We'll pray about it. We'll pray about it. But Tertullian, who's a brilliant church father, like absolutely brilliant. He's a trained lawyer. Um, just wonderful. Um, he, he wrote a, a text he called um, Adversus Marcionum, which means against Marcion. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a friend last week who was studying um, an early church group called the Montanists. The Montanists um, were largely rejected. They were kind of this outcast group, and they weren't um, they weren't heretical, but they were kind of strange to the rest of the church. Um, they were strange because they prophesied, they spoke in tongues, they believed in healing, and they said some things. The Montanists did prophesy some things that didn't come to pass, so they were definitely in error, but they weren't heretical. And Tertullian, this brilliant church father, was actually written off in his late years because he started hanging out with the tongue-talking folk, and I also want you to know that I would be really successful if I wasn't hanging out with you crazy people. Um, so Tertullian, he wrote in his early years, Adversus Marcionum, against Marcion. What Marcion taught, essentially, was that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two separate gods. 
and that the God of the Old Testament was cruel, harsh, and evil, and the God of the New Testament was gracious and kind. And what Marcion did was he developed his own canon or his own list of scripture, which basically meant he threw away all of the Old Testament and he only picked New Testament books, which he thought wouldn't directly contradict his viewpoints. Now, what the reason Marcion's important in church history is because he was actually a catalyst to cause the church fathers to come together and say, wait, we need to create a canon list of scripture so people know what's what we believe is inspired and what's not. I think Brother Don Forsey goes over some of that information in his connect groups his connect group called Laying a Biblical Foundation. Um, so Tertullian writes against Marcion in a five-part um, five series. Um, part one, Tertullian refutes dualism. Now, dualism is the idea that there are multiple gods competing for control. And Tertullian says, no, there are not multiple gods competing for tr- control. There is one supreme, ultimate God. He is the only Lord of all the earth. There's no one else like him. Hannah says, there is no rock like our God. So the first thing Tertullian says is, no, you're wrong, Marcion. There's only one God. Um, the second thing he does is, or actually, the, the, the first two do that. The, the third part um, proves that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Covenant. That Jesus doesn't make sense without the Old Testament prophecies. So the second thing Tertullian does, it says, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And the last two parts basically refute Marcion's gospel, which is a bit um, Gnostic. Now, I don't believe that any of us are heretics or even close to Marcionites. And I don't think that this line of thought has a ton of traction in the church in the West right now. But at times, I hear in the church teachings that very subtly lean us towards Marcion and lead us away from the authority, the full authority of Scripture. For So let me just take a moment to kind of show you this line of thought so that we can get on the same track here. First, Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And Philip says, or Jesus says to Philip, um, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We do find in Jesus a very clear representation of the Father. Hebrews says he's the exact imprint of the Father, exact replication of the Father. We also believe that the entirety of the scriptures are the breath of the Holy Spirit and perfectly true. So our culture continually says to the church today, Jesus never spoke out against homosexuality. Therefore, you should never speak out against homosexuality. Now, that's a half truth because Jesus does say in Matthew 18 that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That That's a statement about biblical sexual ethic. But Jesus in the Gospels never directly confronts homosexuality. Now, the problem is that the Old Testament is filled with confrontations against a homosexual lifestyle and the New Testament, in particular Paul, on at least two occasions, three occasions, speaks directly against homosexuality. So our culture says, you're not allowed to talk about this because the Gospels don't record Jesus talking about it. And we say, no, but the whole scriptures are God-breathed and the scripture talks about it. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? The scriptures presents a biblical ethic. And so they're, they're saying, if Jesus didn't say it, you're not allowed to say it. And we're saying, no, all, all the scriptures Jesus said, it's all the breath of God. There are multiple problems with that line of argument, but I'll leave that one there. Now, that's an easy example to point out, but we do it with issues of God's character. The popular teaching of the day is that God only thinks good thoughts towards us, that he's not a God of judgment, but a perfect kind of westernized kindness. And if Jesus never 
came off as harsh or struck anyone down, then why would we ever believe that God grows frustrated or that God can be angry? And the answer is quite simply because God is angry at times in Scripture and he strikes people down in Acts. Luke the physician wrote the book of Acts. I know I'm like treaties in you right now, but go with me. Luke the physician wrote the book of Acts and he tells us that um, the Holy Spirit struck down Ananias and Sapphira because they lied to the Holy Spirit and they were infiltrating the church with wickedness. And then in Acts chapter 12, Luke records that Herod Agrippa, the text says, um, was speaking and the people began to shout the voice of God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to the Lord. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So Luke is an early church father. He's a physician. That means you can believe that Luke's got a good head on his shoulders. And Luke writes the gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts. The gospel of Luke is the longest recording of Jesus' life. And the book of Acts is intended to be the second part of the book. It's kind of one work. You read one, you read two. So Luke presents all of Jesus' life and then tells us in Acts that the Holy Spirit strikes people down because of their wickedness. And to Luke, those things are not contradictory. Those things work together to Luke. And Jesus in Luke 13, verses 31 through 21, says this. At the very hour, some Pharisees come and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you, speaking to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Now, Jesus here is speaking of a different Herod than the Herod that struck down in Acts chapter 12. But Jesus says, Go and tell that fox, which is a good old Near Eastern insult. If Jesus represents the Father perfectly here, we can be sure that Jesus' posture towards Herod is the posture of the Father towards Herod. And I would go as far to say that Jesus even doesn't like Herod. Now that doesn't mean what we do understand from the full counsel of Scripture is that God always accepts the broken and the contrite. That God is a God who longs for repentance. And if any person bows themselves before Him, God not only accepts them, but God runs towards them. That's the full testimony of Scripture. But the Scriptures teach us that God is slow to anger. So He's not a quick, angry God. He's not a frustrated, really anxious wound tight God. But what we teach today is that God is never angry. But what the scriptures teach is God is slow to anger. The scriptures teach he's slow to anger. He's not quick to anger. We say God never, never angers. He's this perfect Western, always really um, happy, go lucky thing. And and what I, what I want to say to you is that my point this morning is not that God is more harsh than we think he is. My point is that in the Old Testament, God is much more gracious than we think he is. And so when I say to you, God always accepts the broken and the contrite, I, that's an Old Testament text. We learned that from the life of David. When I say to you, God is slow to anger. He's compassionate, abounding in love. That's an Old Testament text. That's, that's a promise of the Old Testament scripture. But I am saying that the kind of logic that says Jesus was always happy and never confrontational. Therefore, God is always happy and never confrontational is Marcion-like. And it's not true. Jesus is not always peppy. We see Jesus weeping, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together. 
We see Jesus frustrated. There's a moment where a woman's caught in sin and caught in a sexual affair and the men of the law drag her before him. I think Jesus is frustrated because the man, you, you don't get caught in a sexual affair by yourself. It takes two people to have a sexual affair. Somehow she's caught in the act, but she's the only one drugged before him. And Jesus is not happy in this moment. He does show grace to the woman, but he confronts the Pharisees. And then he says to the woman, get up and go and sin no more. Don't, don't pervert the character of Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? I'm speaking very directly to our Western culture. Don't manipulate, don't twist the person of Jesus. Now, Marcion was a Gnostic, and Gnosticism teaches this, that, that there are two gods, one that's perfectly good and one that's perfectly evil. And Gnosticism also teaches that everything that you touch, anything that's matter is evil, and everything that is spiritual is good. Um, and what it does is that it really minimizes God to yin and yang, that there is a perfectly white good God and a perfectly bad God. And now our God is perfectly good, but he gets to establish the terms as to what goodness means. And I'm sure that Herod did not think it was good the moment that his bowels were being eaten up by worms, but it's good because God gets to determine what's good and not good. And so what we do is we minimize God to this formula, to this only, you know, I know I'm being a little bit harsh, but I'm trying to be truthful to the scripture. We minimize him to this only kind of cuddly figure. And what you do, you just robbed God of all of his holiness, of all of his emotion and intellect. He is a a God who functions as a person and persons have personality and persons can be offended and persons have likes and dislikes. And the scriptures say, don't you grieve the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. He, He can be frustrated. Now, again, the clear testimony of scripture is that he is a very kind, good father. So I thank God that we left this idea that God is the cruel, angry Abraham Lincoln sitting on his big judge. I thank God that we've come to the revelation that God is kind and gracious and loving. But what, what history always does is it swings like a pendulum from one side to the other. And so a generation ago, ten, two generations ago, God was this angry, hard father. And now we're swinging, saying God is perfectly kind. He never thinks a thought about you. That he, never, he doesn't see any of your sin. He's never frustrated with you. He's never, he's never um, dissatisfied, but he's almost this robot that only sees good things. And what we're doing is we're swinging the pendulum so far that we're starting to dance with Marcion. And now we as a church want to be faithful to what the scriptures say. And he is an incredibly gracious, kind, loving father. Very slow to anger, but he does anger. He does anger. And so as we approach our passage today and God is going to judge Eli, I want to just encourage you, don't lean out of this passage by clinging to Marcion. The God who speaks to Eli today, who is frustrated with Eli, who will cut off Eli's family legacy as being priests because of their gross sin, that God is our God. Now, there are covenantal distinctions, praise God. The blood of Jesus has been offered for us. I am washed by the blood. The scriptures say, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me. I do not need to bring animal sacrifice. Praise God, I get to eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. Somebody say, hallelujah. There are covenantal distinctions, but God is not like shifting shadows, James says. God is not type A in the Old Testament and very laid back in the New Testament. He's the same person all the way through. He's a person. 
All right, so let's read our text. Are you guys okay with me so far? I know that's a little bit controversial, but I'm doing my best to present the teaching of the scripture and not to just regurgitate what modern Christian culture is saying, but, but to actually wrestle with what the text says. And Luke says that, that Jesus did present God as a perfectly kind, loving father. And then he tells us in Acts that when people lie to the church, the Holy Spirit cut them down. And so, so that's not my problem. That's our problem. We have to wrestle with what the text says about God. We are not Marcionites that just pick the ones we like. We believe it's all inspired cover to cover. Even the little note that your grandma wrote in the front is inspired. All right, let's read. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offering that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there should not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, that shall come upon you. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I'll build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now, if you weren't here last week or you've missed the story, just quickly, what we've learned from the first couple chapters of Samuel so far is that Eli's house, Eli is the priest, he's also the leading judge. Eli's um, here tells us that Eli has grown fat by eating portions of the sacrifices, of people's sacrifices that did not belong to him. And so we also learn that Eli's sons, the priest, send their servants to the people as people... Late, normal people come to the house of God to bring their sacrifice. Little temple servants come out and say, give me the choicest part of meat. And if the people say back to him, no, that part doesn't belong to you. You, you get this part according to the law. Then the young men will say to him, you give it to us. We will take it by force. Then the scripture also told us that Eli's sons are having sex with the girls who are supposed to be serving in the temple. So they're, they're completely living wicked. And so for years this has gone on. God is slow to anger. This has happened for a long time. Eli is old in age. God has given them ample time to repent, ample time to turn. God has been merciful. God has been slow. But God now says enough is enough. And I am tired of watching you disdain my sacrifices. I am tired of enduring your wickedness. I have have had enough. 
Now the scripture says that um, a random man of God comes to Eli. The phrase is used over 70 times as a prophetic, as prophets are in, introduced in the Old Testament. Here, this random man of God is John the Baptist blazing out of the wilderness with no reputation, with no fancy dress, with no title. Just a random man of God comes to Eli and begins to prophesy. He follows the typical, typical prophetic formula of the Old Testament, which we'll kind of approach today. But in the formula, he gave a sign. And he says, this is a sign to you that your two sons will die in the same day. He says, if my words aren't true, then the sign won't come to pass. But if my words are true, both of your sons die in the same day. Fall to the sword. Now we know that his word comes to pass. And we'll get to that in a couple weeks. But we know that both of Eli's sons will die in the same day. Um, So we're sure in the text wants us to be sure that when this man speaks, we hear directly from the heart of God, that this prophecy is true, that this prophecy is a reflection of God's heart. So first, Eli is reminded of God's faithfulness to his ancestors. God says, I honored, I honored the house of your father while he was still under the oppression of Pharaoh. I established him as a priest before me, His descendants I allowed to minister before me. I provided for them, giving them portions of my sacrifice for food. I've honored your father's house. I've given them positions of honor. They are people of honor because I chose them. Now, Eli is a Levite, a son of Aaron. God says, I've shown myself to Aaron even while he was still under Pharaoh's oppression. Exodus 4 says that God appeared to Aaron and sent him to Moses. He gave Aaron a dignified vocation, a position of honor throughout all of Israel. He dressed him in a linen ifad, an intricate garment. You've seen the pictures of Old Testament priests. They were dressed in these very intricate robes. God made the house of Aaron a house of honor. The Lord has shown himself faithful to the house of Aaron. Now God begins his rebuke towards Eli by reminding Eli how faithful he has been to him. I want you to consider just for a moment, has he been faithful to you? When we thought the bills couldn't possibly get paid and he came through. When you couldn't find work and he provided. When we didn't have money for school clothes, God is saying to Eli, don't forget who put those clothes on your back. When the tires gave out, when you had that child out of wedlock and you thought it was the end of the world and the bills would never get paid and everybody would look down on you when there was no way that your marriage was going to survive, when it seemed like all of hell has come against you, was he faithful to you? Has he been your provision? We say it every week again as we bring our tithes and offerings. And that's one of the reasons we believe in tithing because we're saying to our money, it ain't you that pays the bills. It's God who has met me. When the money ran out and the calculator wouldn't add up, still came, stuff still came together. We still ate because God is our provision, not this little pieces of paper. It was he who blessed your business, he who put his favor on your life. He's given you the energy and strength to have work ethic, praise God. He gave us talents to grow in. We participate in earning income, but he's the one who provides the means. And when our jobs fail us and the contracts fall through and the plant decides to cut back, he still sustains us. Now God says to Eli, I established your father's house. I fed them. 
I clothed them. I made them men of honor. And I've sustained you too. And I've endured your lack of faithfulness to me for years. All the while continually making sure that you had food to eat, clothes to wear, income to meet your needs. And you have not repented. And God says, I am dissatisfied. I'm not pleased. God says, I feel disrespected. Eli, like a spoiled child who doesn't recognize that his needs are met by a hardworking father whose blood, sweat, and tears have his, his faithfulness. He's got out of bed morning after morning. You know kids that way you don't realize the pain that their parents have endured to provide for them. God says, I meet your needs every morning and every evening, and you mock me. And of course, these are uncomfortable questions to ask ourselves. But if God has been faithful to you, does your life mock him? Is he enduring your rebellion in these moments? Or do you live in such a way that honors him? Because he says to Eli, I met your need day after day, and you have continually spit in my face. I gave you plenty of time, but today is your day. Enough is enough. And where do you stand this morning? So first, the Lord reminds Eli of his faithfulness towards Eli. And second, the Lord pronounces Eli guilty. Verse 29 reads, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? Again, God has allotted for the priests to eat from the sacrifices, but they're taking whatever they want for their little Sunday barbecue. They need to go to the grocery store and get what they need. And the Lord says to Eli, you honor your sons above me. You're fat from eating right alongside them. You're a man of the flesh and not of the spirit. I've honored your house as a holy people. I've called you to stand in my presence. And you profane my holiness. And we need to hear that. Because he's washed us with the precious blood of Jesus. He has called us a holy people, a sanctified people, saints. He has anointed us. He has commissioned us. He has made us vessels of honor, even though we were totally and completely wicked in and of ourselves. He has honored us. And do we profane his holiness? What we learn thus far is that God is the God of faithfulness, a God of provision, a God who honors his, his people, but he is also the God who sees. Psalm 139, 1-4, I've read you this quite a bit lately, but let's read it again. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. He sees Eli and his sons dishonor God for years, and it has not gone unnoticed. Oftentimes we assume that God's not concerned with our lifestyle because God is actually giving us ample time to repent. God gives you space. God gives you time. And you think that you're blessed in your sin when in reality God is just slow to anger. Now, 
Now, the Christian life is intended to be one of progressive sanctification. That means that, that those who walk with Jesus are constantly growing in holiness. So today, there are things in my life that tomorrow will not be in my life. I love Jesus today, but praise God, tomorrow I'm going to love Jesus even more than I loved him today. There's a, a beautiful plan and provision that God has laid out for us to continually grow in holiness. And as the church walks in that path of holiness and grows in holiness, there is so much grace for you. So much grace. And Martin Luther says, one of his little statements on his uh, thesis was this, that all of the Christian life is repentance. So we're learning and growing. I'm confessing my sins when I messed up. Praise God, I had to get a little confession going this week. I'm confessing. I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm forgiving people who sin against me. And when we live in that state of growing and walking with God, all is good in the hood, if you know what I'm saying. We are God honors us. He loves us. He's not nitpicking us. He is not the God who's constantly waiting and like waiting for you to mess up. He knows you're going to mess up. But he intends that you get up and you keep walking and you keep living in holiness and you keep pressing forward and you keep asking for forgiveness. There are some times when you're living in sin blindly and you don't even realize how much, if y'all forgive me for saying this, but how much of a butthead you are sometimes. And the Holy Spirit just lets you live that way for a while because you can only handle one thing at a time. And then one day God says to you, hey, you're living like a you know what and you need to repent. They're like in God's kindness he even doesn't confront us on everything at one time he leads us like a good shepherd and like a good father my kids can't tie their shoes yet i'm not kicking them for it they're gonna learn so he leads us that way but from the same sense don't think that because he is that gracious in the way that he leads us that you can live in a way that never repents that never asks for forgiveness that just does whatever you want to do and that god doesn't see it his eyes see And he's dissatisfied. And he's displeased. The Christian teaching today is that God never sees any of your sins. When he looks at you, he only sees Jesus. Now that is a profoundly beautiful statement and profoundly true when understood correctly. You are accepted before God. When you stand before him, he clothes you in the righteousness of Christ and accepts you as if you are Christ himself. But that does not mean that God is unaware of everything, all the sin that's going on in here. You are externally righteous the moment that Jesus puts his robe around you. But that doesn't mean that his eyes don't see the fact that you're bitter. And his eyes don't see the fact that you're cold. And his eyes don't see the fact that you live in sin. Don't let this modern presentation of the gospel twist for you what the scripture says and allow you to live in sin all the while God being displeased towards you. You are clothed in the righteousness in Jesus. And when he looks at you, when I come to him in faith and repentance and humility, he does accept me as if I'm Jesus himself. But he also tells the church, don't grieve the Holy Spirit to the church. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit to to the church. You can live in a way that would dissatisfy the Holy Spirit. And so, again, those tensions have to be grappled with. And you don't get to just throw away the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit because you're going to pick and choose only what you like. Again, the Holy Spirit is a person with a personality. He has preferences. He has likes and dislikes. And if you are in Jesus, he likes you. He really likes you. 
but he does not like when you misrepresent him. It's, we could look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you could ask me, were Ananias and Sapphira Christians? Did they go to heaven or hell? Remember, Scripture says they were both struck down. And I would answer you with absolute certainty, yes, they went to heaven or hell. I'm not quite sure which one. One of, one of them. They went, they went somewhere. I don't know. The text doesn't give me enough information to know if they were really born again or not. But we do know that God was frustrated that someone would come into his house and amongst his people and lie to his spirit. Frustrated enough that he cut them off because he did not want that to grow in his church. So, so, so I don't know. I don't know all of the ins and outs. But I do know that the New Testament presents God in such a way that he sees our shortcomings. And he beckons us to repent, to change like a good father would. And when you refuse, he's frustrated. Jesus, in Revelation, this is one of the things that always makes me giggle about the idea that we can only use what's in the Gospels concerning the life of Jesus. In Revelation, Jesus speaks directly to the apostle of John, and he gives him letters to seven churches. And from the mouth of Jesus, Jesus says to the churches, like at Laodicea, you're stale, and if you don't repent, I'll quit using you. Jesus says that to churches. Now, is he a loving, kind father? Yes. Does he see? Yes. He's a person. He's allowed to have feelings about things. He's not formulaic. He's not a robot. And so here we see that Jesus is frustrated. Jesus and the Father, Holy Spirit, are perfectly one. They're frustrated with Eli. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's saying, since we're under grace, should we just live however we want to live? And the answer is profoundly no. How can you who died to sin still live in it? So quickly, does God see the sin of the believer? Yes, he sees it. He convicts us of it. He leads us to repentance. And he gives us the strength of the Holy Spirit to put our flesh on the cross and to die to it. Does he reject us because of our sin? No, we are washed in the blood of Jesus. Do you lose your salvation every time you sin? Of course not. Is it possible to live in rebellion in such a way that you eventually denounce your own salvation and commit apostasy? I think so. But I think it's very rare. The Father doesn't quit on born-again believers when they live in rebellion. He disciplines us, Hebrews says. And he may sit you down. I love my daughters. I tell them that they're beautiful every single day. They actually get tired of it. They tell me, Daddy, why do you always tell us you love us? Quit. But I also expect them to listen when I speak. And they get to fighting, and then I will raise my voice. They get to throwing stuff at each other, which is kind of funny, but I know I shouldn't laugh. I raise my voice. I put their little behinds in time out. And so all of our talk about God putting purpose and destiny on our lives may be for nothing if we don't learn holiness. If you live in a way that dishonors him, God says, I will honor those who honor me. I'll use those who honor me. I used to work with a man um, at, a, at a fantastic, well, I ain't going to tell you that. I ain't embarrassing myself today. I'm keeping that for myself. I'll say this, when I was in high school, I had to dress up like a certain character and dance around a piece of place. I used to break out from that, that outfit that was the stinking thing needed a fan, but they didn't make fans in. I got heat rash and nasty grease. But I worked with a man, um, I don't know, I'm 16, 17 maybe, and he's 
in his 40s. And that man about flirt with anything that walks. He had a heartbeat. Um, he was married with kids. I caught him kissing a dog one day. I had to kick him off. That's not true. It's not, <laughs> not true at all. But he did. He flirted with anybody. He was married. He, bra- he would brag about his extracurricular activities. Um, but one day I'm, I'm working in, in, the, in the kitchen and he says, God's called me to be a preacher. He's promised me that one day I'm going to be a great pastor. I think he even used the word anointed. I don't know. I didn't know what that word meant. I was living in, my, in sin myself. I didn't know my head from my behind. Um, but in that moment, I remember thinking, the last thing God needs is another pastor who can't keep his pants up. Now, God says to Eli here, I promised that there would be someone from your house that served me as a priest forever, but no more. So you say, does God break his promise? And I say, no, God gives us a ton of contingent promises. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Not, I'm going to be harsh for a minute, not delight yourself in your pornography and expect God to do whatever you want. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. That's a contingent promise. So God says to Eli, I have promised that I would use your family forever. You did not uphold your end of the promise. I sit you down today. Now, Again, in our modern Christian context, we talk so much about prophetic words and God's promise over our lives, which is good. I'm good. Totally good. And in the recent days, you know, everybody walks around with a little tape recorder in their pocket. And when someone went to prophesy, they start recording it. And then they wake up every morning and they listen to it over again. I'm not hating on any of that. I think those are good principles. When God speaks and you feel like he spoke, write it down and remind yourself of it. Luke says that Mary stored up in her heart all the things that God spoke. But what I, I one of the things, y'all know I'm not like a, I'm not looking to pick a doctrinal fight ever. One of the things of the word of faith movement that rubs me wrong is that it teaches us to just keep repeating the promise, keep repeating what we think we heard. And eventually, if you repeat it enough, God's going to do it. When in reality, most of God's promises over our life are contingent. And you could keep saying, God, you're going to make me a great preacher and keep sleeping around with everybody. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. You could keep saying, God, you said you were going to bless my business. And God says, you keep stealing. You're not paying your taxes. You're living without integrity. No. And we keep telling ourselves, if we just keep saying what God said, then he's going to have to do it. He has to do it. And you don't get to twist his arm. He says, delight yourself in me. Then I give you the desires of your heart. Not keep screaming at me. Give me the desires of my heart. Promises oftentimes are contingent. And so I hear 24-7, God has called me to be a great preacher. Well, if you don't open your Bible but twice a year, I'm saying you dishonor God. And that promise might not come to pass. And it is not because God is incapable of fulfilling his promises. Because God will not fulfill his promise because you dishonor him. You guys kind of hearing what I'm saying? Y'all quiet this morning. So God says to Eli, I promised that I would uphold your house. I promised that your sons would serve me. But today I tell you that not one of your sons will live in old age. That means that not one of your sons will grow old enough to be an elder in the house of Israel. Never again will people from your lineage have leadership amongst my people. I cut you off. I've given you time. 
I have honored you. I've supplied all of your needs. I've allowed you to stand in a holy place week after week and year after year. And you have spit in my face for too long. Your sons will die in the same day. I'll leave one alive to weep. And no one again will live an old enough age to stand as an elder in my house. I won't allow it. God intends to bless and use the family of Eli, but they have chosen to dishonor his holiness. Now, God is a gracious, loving, and kind father. His desire is to bless us and use us. He does have good plans for you, but he's a holy God. And God says, I may have used your fathers, may have blessed our nation in recent years, may have even used this church in recent years, but I will not use the people who mock my name. God's rejecting Eli and he's already anointing the replacement. Samuel's already growing up in the house. God has already chosen the man that will take his place. You want to watch the same pattern happen with Saul? God rejects him all the while. David's in the fields and God's already speaking to him and moving on his heart. God has already replaced the man. So I know this is a hard word for us, but again, we're not Marcionites. We believe that thing cover to cover. We don't pick and choose which passages we like and which ones we don't like. It's one of the reasons I'm preaching straight through it. We're going to read it all. So hear the heart of the Father this morning. He loves you unconditionally. He has good plans for your life. He's patient. He's kind. He's your provision. He intends to prosper you, to bless you. He wants to use you to see people saved and healed and delivered. He wants to use this house to change this community. It's his desire to pour out his spirit in our midst in such a way that people just can't get enough of Jesus. He really, really wants to use us in this hour, but he will only allow his name to be dishonored for so long. So we have to be very sure that we are a house that loves the power of God and loves holiness. Remember, the Holy Spirit comes to exalt the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit rested upon Jesus and stayed because the Holy Spirit really likes Jesus. And the more we would look like Jesus, the more we got a better shot of some Holy Spirit staying around here. But if we're just living however we want to live... I can promise you, I can say that with emphatic certainty from the scripture, that we will still have a measure of God in us because we are saved, born again people, but he will not release his manifest presence on a house who does not take his holiness seriously. Who does not take his holiness seriously. So in conclusion, our message today is not really about Eli, it's about Marcion. It's about generations swinging Theologically from pendulum to pendulum. God is not the angry God of two generations ago. He's also not the God of Marcion who never corrects, disciplines, or confronts us. But again, I'm worried that as that pendulum is swinging, we are flirting with the ideology of Marcion and anything in scripture that challenges us to change, we avoid and mark it off. The thriving message of our passage today is that God is not pleased. 
the thriving message of our culture today is that God is always happy. But the consistent message of scripture is that he's slow to anger. And there's the balance that we have to live with. He's slow to anger. He's not the angry God of two generations ago. He's also not the God who never angers. He's the God who's slow to anger. That's the scriptural representation of our father. If you deny that scriptural representation, you stand with Marcion. God is a God of love. He is absolutely and totally a God of love. Hebrews teaches us that our fathers disciplined us because they loved us. How much more should we appreciate the discipline of the father? I absolutely love my daughters to pieces, man. I love them enough that when they act like heathen, I deal with it because I don't want them to be in juvie at 14. You hear what I'm saying? God is a God of love. He also gets to define what love is. Love is not the modern Western depiction of love. Love in the modern Western culture is passive, completely non-confrontational, totally accepting. And anyone in the room who's ever been a father or a mother for more than 24 hours realizes the extreme tension between wanting to be loving and compassionate, but also wanting to raise that child to not be a heathen. It's a tension with little kids that I live with every day. I want them to love me. I want them to feel like I'm I'm an open, accepting, loving father who hugs them. I also don't want them to sell crack, okay? There's a tension there. (laughs) You thought that was funny, Sean. (laughs) That's my brother-in-law, y'all. He gets the jokes. You you guys kind of feel what I'm saying, though? Anyone who's been a parent understands that tension. Now, hear God say, I'm your father. There's the tension. Love you perfectly. Always welcome in my presence. Act like a fool. I'm going to say something to you. Don't expect me to give you all my money so you can go live in sin. You ever seen fathers that give the little credit cards out? Go do whatever you want. That's not the kind of God he is. He's a, he's a good father who wants good things for us. Therefore, he will not partner with our ridiculousness. We scream, God is not harsh. And he is not. He is not harsh. He is so kind but he is honest he is an honest God he doesn't look us in the face and say you're doing everything perfect every time we stand before him from time to time we get a gut check and we get God say you were a little rude today it's not harsh but he is honest and we say God is working all things together for your good The scriptures say God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes there is a contingent there Delight yourself in the Lord. He gives you the desires of your heart. There's a contingent there. Now, I'm very glad, very glad we've escaped a religious depiction of God that says he's the angry father waiting for us to fail. But I'm also worried that soon enough we'll find ourselves standing with Marcion if we don't allow that pendulum to swing back to the middle and hold all of Scripture and say it's all inspired, it's all true, it all counts, it's all the breath of the Holy Spirit. Whether Jesus said it in his life or Jesus said it from heaven in Revelation, whether the Holy Spirit said it through Paul, it all comes from the triune God. It's all authoritative and it all counts. It all counts. I'm also worried that many churches with big promises from God Churches like us who God really wants to use. I'm worried that churches with big promises will never see those promises come to pass 
because they refuse to live in holiness. Because they dishonor his name. And so we want to be a church used in power. We want to be a church that is loving and gracious and accepting to our community. We want to be a church where people walk in and they feel so welcome and so encouraged. But we also want to be a church of holiness that honors the God of this house. God forbid we honor everybody that ever walks in the door and dishonor the God of the house. God forbid you learn the building, but you never learn the God of the house. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.